and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're talking The Young Pope, and later we're joined by Patrick Warburton, who plays Lemony Snicket in the Netflix original series, Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Solar Seitz. Hi, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hi, Gazelle and Matt. Hello. 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 So with Inauguration Day less than a week away, we wanted to use this week's prompt to briefly touch on an episode of TV that Blackish did last week called Lemons, which was focused entirely on Donald Trump's victory. And we're very pleased to have Vulture Blackish recapper and one of the emerging writer fellows at BuzzFeed, Nicole Perkins, here with us today to discuss it. Nicole, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, Nicole. Hi. Hi. Congratulations on your fellowship. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> so, you know, the prompt today is is pretty simple. I I thought we should just take a moment to talk about what we thought about this episode. Did you think this episode was effective? at what it was trying to do? Absolutely. I think it was uh, a great episode. I think it, um, I think it not only did it capture a lot of what uh, Black America was feeling or is feeling about um, Trump's election, I think it was a really good family episode and it gave people lots of ways to approach talking to their younger children about the episode and about what's going on post-election. Mm-hmm. Jen, you, you touched on in a piece about how you you talked about how rare it is to see something so topical on television so soon after it happened. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I I thought it was a really extraordinary episode of television because it's it's somewhat rare to have an entire episode of TV devoted to a political figure or a, a single political movement, although we've seen more of that recently. But to do it when it, when we're still in the moment um, is really unusual. I mean, the Carmichael show did an episode about Trump as their season finale back in May that was about the election. And uh, South Park, of course, did some Trump related stuff. In fact, they had something about the election the day after, but it was in a, a much sillier vein. And they were using Mr. Garrison as a surrogate for Trump, whereas Blackish was talking about what what people are really talking about and how people are really feeling. And, and there were times, you know, I, I thought especially the stuff that they did in the workplace with how no one can get anything done and they're constantly, you know, trying to have a meeting and then they're stopped like, oh, my God, did you see what just happened? I mean, that I mean, it was it was funny because it was just so achingly accurate um, as as far as what's going on. So I felt like it was really it was unusual from that perspective. And, and given the constraints of the sitcom format, you know, you've got a 20, 25 minute or less show to, to handle all of these issues. And, and uh, you know, it, maybe it was a little too pat and hopeful at the end, but given the format and, and all the things that we're trying to get across, I thought they did a great job. Is there anything you think that it could have that you that you didn't that you didn't think it handled quite so effectively or it could have been done better? I thought the monologue was uh, I, I think Blackish has a tendency to go from zero to 60 with with politics and i would have liked to have seen a little more gradation mm-hmm. and i also feel that i thought the use of strange fruit i went back and forth on that because on one hand it's a nuclear bomb to drop on a television audience many of whom although you know a lot of people do know about the history of that song and what it's about but, but there are a lot of people who are tuning in to watch a family sitcom on uh, abc who don't know what it's about so uh 
but my other uh, and that's great. That's fantastic if they're in being introduced to it for the first time. However, that that is a thermonuclear piece of popular culture, and I've seen it used a lot in the last few years. And I'm beginning to worry that its power is being sapped by overuse. Mm. Where else have you seen mm. it used? I've seen it in some documentaries, mm-hmm. and I've seen you know I've seen performances of it in in, in uh, concerts, benefits, things like that. And it used to be, you know, it just came back into circulation somewhat recently where it became like okay to kind of move that into the repertoire. But as recently as five or six years ago, we were seeing pieces written in the mainstream media about this song as if it were something that had been unearthed from some kind of, you know, missile silo 800 feet beneath the earth, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, why the hell not? Why the hell not? You know, like like uh, this is one of these cases where it's like you can critique the form, uh, the style, the technique, the 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 temperature of the show, or you can just accept that the show doesn't care about that. That's not what it cares about this week. Right. You know, yeah. and they've done it before. They've done it before with the, you know, the Obama uh, monologue mm-hmm. in the police brutality episode, which was one of the best episodes of television of that year. And uh you know, this is a show that, you know, this is a show that is like it's a bubblegum cigar that sometimes is an exploding cigar. And you never know which one you're going to get mm-hmm. when you tune in. And that's one of the things that makes it so vital. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Any any issues that I might have with the episode, as you're saying, Matt, is more of a tonal choice where it never really works for me with the show, where it's kind of striking this <laughs> – it kind of neatly ties things in a bow a little bit. And that's makes sense for the type of show that it is. But um, yeah, the tone of optimism that it strikes at the end of this episode, I don't think was super powerful to me because it's not something that I pr- particularly feel is powerful, even when Obama says it, you know? Right. So, and mm-hmm. that's kind of the, that's what Kenya Bears has said in an interview with us is kind of the type of narrative he was going for is the one that kind of Obama is projecting to the nation right now. But, Nicole, I, I also wanted to get a little bit more of your thoughts on the episode. There was there was something you'd mentioned in your recap about Dre's, Dre's monologue and how it felt uh, out of character for him, That which is something I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this buildup of Dre as this guy. I, you know, I think angry black man is a little too much, but he's definitely aware of the injustices around him. And now for him to see that his coworkers are finally experiencing some of what he's experienced, and now he's like, okay, let's back up from that and just all get along. And that just felt a little not real for me. It felt very kind of what you guys are talking about, just a little too kumbaya. And, and <laughs> it just didn't feel authentic to his character. Like, he's been, you know, annoyed this whole time. And now he's just like, okay, we need to move past this and all just have, you know, work together for the good of the country. Okay, but how? Just by being nice to each other? That's not Dre. No. That's mm-hmm. not him. Right. No, it's not. The moments I liked the most were really Bo sitting at home because I felt like... <laughs> In her Habitat for Humanity sweeping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's just the best, but it felt like the most... Like, it, I felt like I could see her doing that, and it felt the most relatable. Mm-hmm. It, it's, 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 I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, I, you know, I think it, what was interesting to me, Nicole, about your, your recap is making that point that, you know, you're watching week to week, and is this consistent with what the character would do? Um, and I feel like there must have been for when Kenya Barris was writing it, you, you have this conflict of, 
you got to be true to the character. But uh, this is also, especially this episode, a show where you're trying to project something to the whole country um, and trying to figure out, like, how do I project the message that I feel like maybe I want the country to take away from this in this moment versus what the character would do. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, obviously, I think I think they were trying to project a certain message uh, and that maybe won, won the day over what the character might have more consistently done. And then as far as like, what do we do from here? I think that that is the great question. It's almost I feel like they need to do another episode because in 23 minutes, you can't you can't get there, you know. Right. Well, that's also kind of the trap of uh, family sitcom conventions. You have this very special episode, and then the next one, the, you know, terrible racist father is back to being terrible and racist again. So there's right. no character arc. There's no growth necessarily with the character in these kinds of shows, and that's something that, um, you know, kind of buzzed me about seeing Dre as the one that's uniting everybody, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of Lemons. Yeah, he seems, sure you know, yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm just going to say, like, I'm sure the next episode, he's going to be terrible to Junior again. And he's going to, <laughs> you know, crack jokes about his white co-workers and about their whiteness and stuff. And it's like, okay, but you just told us that we should just stop calling each other names and, and love each other. Mm-hmm. Right. It kind of loses the continuity and can feel a little out of place in a way then. Do you, right. do you see the show continuing to take on? more political issues? Like, could you imagine that happening more frequently? Not that it doesn't already, but I guess in a more explicit way, like it did with this episode. I think so. I think that um, Kenya Barris and his writers have recognized that they do these kinds of episodes very well. And that's, that's the thing. Like, we have this one quibble about Dre's character or about, you know, stuff being too on the nose. But other than that, everything else was incredible. It was really good television. And so they're going to keep coming back to that as a question. There's just going to be so much to pull from in the next, you know, four years or whatever. Um, so I think, I definitely think they're going to keep doing these kinds of shows. It's always risky to do something like this. And, and you know, shows don't generally have a rapid response team kind of structure. I mean, the, one of the only shows I can think of that does is South Park. Where right. they have that ability, and that, and that's in large part because it's a very simply animated show, and they've been doing it for you know twenty years now, and they can they can do that. They can just rip rip something up and and do an entirely new B plot in a week. Um, but most TV shows can't do that, and when they do it, when they bre- I think when they break the normal rhythms of production, you see something that is much more undigested than it would be if it were part of the normal course of you know mapping out the stories and the scenes and the beats of every single episode in a season, which is what they generally try to do before they shoot a frame of episode one. And uh, what this episode reminded me of, and this might sound kind of out of left field, is uh, did you all remember the West Wing episode Isaac and Ishmael that ran after 9-11. This was a, there was a terrorist incident and the White House went into lockdown mode and it became essentially a film, it was almost like a film piece of theater. I mean, even more so than Aaron Sorkin's usual, which is saying a lot. It was like a self-contained play of ideas that was not, I don't believe it was officially even part of the the continuity of the show, Um, but that was pretty widely panned. I mean, it didn't get nearly as favorable a reception as this episode of Blackish did, but it's still cited as an example of, you know, maybe maybe TV drama is not the best way to deal with the news. 
You know, mm-hmm. that maybe there's some mm-hmm. built-in limitations to this format. Like, it's a, you know, it may be a case, like, sometimes it works out, and I would say all things considered, it did for Blackish, but other times it's like you're forcing, as an artist, you're forcing material to do something it might not be inclined to do. Like, the you know, the, the actual medium. Yeah, I guess I just appreciated that they took the risk to, to do it, to get it on the air this quickly. Um, whether it paid off in every single possible way it could have, you know, I, maybe it didn't, but I, I just the fact that they made the attempt, uh, I, I admired that. Yeah. 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 It was nice to, you know, all quibbles aside to kind of see something that really captured a mood that a lot of people could relate to in a way that I don't think we'd really seen to this point. No. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, I wonder if we're going to see more of it. Yeah, I think we definitely are. Yeah, I think so. Thank you so much for joining us, Nicole. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, it's always great to have you on. Not a problem. All right, so that's this week's prompt. Listeners, if you'd like to weigh in on this week's prompt, or if you'd like to suggest a future prompt, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. Next up, we're talking The Young Pope. We'll be right back. My mind now. It's been racing since the summertime. Now I'm holding down the summer now. And all I want is what I can't buy now. So before the show even began, HBO's The Young Pope, which premiered Sunday night, became an internet meme, many of which involved people inserting Young Pope into lyrics of songs. <laughs> Uh, one of my favorites was Vulture's own Jackson McHenry's version, which goes, if I may, young Pope, get out of my mind. My love for you is way out of line. Better run, Pope. You're much too young, Pope. <laughs> I think that was the best one. Oh my God. I, I, you know what? I like Marish Kreisman's as well. Yeah, uh, what was we that? don't care about the young pope. We're talking about the Gentiles. I really like that. <laughs> I didn't. Ha- I didn't come up with one. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, ca- I'm caught out. Alas, mine is but... based on my insistence on calling the show Hot Pope. Okay. Yes, I. You know, uh, I just want to say thanks a lot for doing that because now I, I, I keep calling it that. <laughs> well, that's what calling... my goal was. So <laughs> I have actually asked people, it's like, what's good on TV? It's like, have you seen the hot Pope? (laughs) I mean, I mean, ah. So anyway, so mine is, I'm too hot, hot Pope. (laughs) Hot Pope, baby, this evening. (laughs) So I think all of this may have confused people about what the show is actually about. (laughs) Um, I'm it, sure the I'm sure the uh, uh, I'm sure the loving ass shot of Jude Law and the pilot <laughs> will further confuse them if that's the case. And you know, it part of the fun of the show I think is not knowing too much about it going into it about who this pope is. But Matter Jen, do you want to take a stab at explaining, you know, the basics, the basic premise? Well, he's a young pope. <laughs> he's in the Vatican. He's an American pope. Which is, uh, I don't believe has ever happened in, in the entire history of the Catholic Church. Not that I know of. He's from uh, New York, right? Isn't he from Brooklyn? He's, he's I, like Pope, you know, he's... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's, uh, he's hot. He's a hot Pope. <laughs> and he arrived is... in, the, in the Vatican. Uh, by, uh, you know, well, one of the things I do enjoy about the show is that you don't really know how it was exactly that this guy got to be Pope. Yes. 
It's so unusual. Yeah. It's so it seems so ridiculous, completely ridiculous, unlikely. Like I think every show that's set at some kind of a a, a time honored institution, particularly somewhere like the White House, like think of how many shows have been set in the White House or or the White House is an important part of the show. You just have to go with the idea that you're in an alternate universe or an alternate time line where like Kiefer Sutherland is the president because everybody else is dead or Dennis Haysbert is the president on 24, things like that. You just have to go like, fine, that's the president. Now we're going to roll with it. There haven't been a whole lot of shows about the Vatican. I'm not aware of any others, really. I mean, miniseries, but like a regular show. Apparently am, I, there was, am I wrong about this? Has there been another one that I'm not? No, there was an attempt by Showtime, I believe, a show. I think it was called The Vatican, and Kyle Chandler starred in it, and it never got past the oh. pilot stage. But it mm. seemed like it's... Kyle Chandler was maybe going to become the Pope in the second episode. So we could have had Coach Pope, maybe. Oh, man. Coach, Coach Pope. Or just, you know, another hot Pope. Right. <laughs> Which hot Pope? The other one. Oh. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. Opportunity, but... Well, I did. I, I do enjoy um, getting to know this Pope, this young hot Pope. <laughs> and he's not based on a real Pope. No. The The real youngest Pope if anyone is interested, was Pope Benedict the Ninth from you lived in the eleventh century. He was Pope from when he was eleven to twenty, I believe. Oh. And he served three terms. He was expelled once. He sold the papacy to someone else at one point, then he came back. He may have been gay as well. It's just a very fascinating character if anyone is interested and wow. that could be its own HBO show, I think. That totally but. could be. <laughs> That's the key question. That is Always the question. Our producer wants to know if he was hot. That's what. Uh, that's really. On, that's really what we all want to know when we're talking about the popes. Based on yes. the, the etching on Wikipedia, I couldn't say. But <laughs> well, you know, etching. Like new Ryan Murphy limited series, Italian Pope story. <laughs> and you can just do a different one every season. IPS. Yeah, there you go. IPS colon the Vatican, but that's the title every season. <laughs> but I think you know we're. We're joking a lot because this is this is funny, but I think people will. Be, <laughs> I think weird how those things. Go. I don't think it's funny at all. I think I think hot young popes are very a very serious matter, and we need to treat it with dignity. But I do, I do think people are going to be surprised by how austere the show actually is. Yeah, you know it's. It's not like it's all. I mean, it's it's a flashy. It's has. It's, it's not all hot <laughs> young popishness, guys. Just Sometimes so you know, there are kangaroos. It's a serious business. <laughs> well, it is surreal. It is yeah. surreal, and I don't mean that. And like a lot of times when people throw around the word surreal, they don't really mean it's surreal. But it's a surreal show. It's it's weird, and you know, it's funny you use the word austere, and I think it is austere. Sometimes, mm -hmm. but other times it's very expressionistic. I mean, I didn't expect. I mean, this is the kind of show where you, when you describe it, it sounds like you're making it up. But I did not expect one of the episodes, which is coming up, to begin with a slow motion shot of the Pope walking in profile with rock music blasting, like he's a character in a freaking Scorsese film. I do, mm -hmm. I do like the strange tone that it strikes in this way. I mean, you mentioned the music and. You have everything from Andrew Bird on the soundtrack to LMFAO's "Sexy and I Know It." Yeah, like it's <laughs> it's hard to define what this show is, but that's part of why I'm intrigued by it. It's also interesting because it is a show. Uh, not too many TV shows deal with faith at all, mm -hmm. and this one is primarily about it. 
I mean, it's about the the whole idea of it, the whole idea of there being a, a God or a higher power or a world beyond what we can rationally perceive. And then proceeding from there to ask, how do you how do you communicate a policy towards thinking about that and mm-hmm. uh, to the faithful, as it were? And, you know, he struggles with his homily. He struggles with contradictions. He struggles with advice to give to people who are having crises of various kinds, including crises of faith. And and uh, that's not something you see. Uh, not only do you not see that every day, you just don't see that. Mm-hmm. You just don't see that on TV. Like we've talked about religion on television before on this show and. I think we agreed that not very many series do a good job of dealing with it on a regular basis, and most of them just kind of ignore it yeah. entirely. Um, but uh, this this is a show that does that. And yet, they don't, like for all the ex- kind of surreal or expressionistic touches on the show, they don't try really, as I've seen a few episodes, you know, ahead of what the viewers have seen. There's not a lot of like quasi-mystical, like, uh, you know, attempts to represent rapture or reverence or 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 spiritual crisis or anything there's a lot of people talking about it mm-hmm. which is interesting it's a, yeah. it's a it deals with it verbally but they're not considering the you know the 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 filmmaking talent on display here and how freely they're using it for other purposes it's interesting to me that they don't use it for that to me what's interesting about the show is that you know you have this this main character Jude Law's character who obviously has some really grandiose ideas about himself. But uh, a lot of the show is about, to the point Matt was just making, seeing these religious figures like the Pope and, and you know, the other figures in the Catholic Church doing things that are just very, very normal. And that's what's so funny to me, like yeah. the fact that he wants to have Cherry Coke Zero for breakfast. Yeah. Uh, in, in a subsequent episode, you know, you see Diane Keaton, who is, who's uh, Sister Mary, shooting baskets. Like, I've never seen a nun shooting baskets. Like, there's a no. whole montage that opens an, a, an episode where they show all these nuns playing soccer and things like that. And and it's... <laughs> and those nuns can play. They can good. seriously... Yeah. There's one nun in there that's like, you know, could nutmeg Lionel Messi. It's unbelievable. <laughs> well, yeah, it's those unexpected elements that I really like about it. And you, you... There's even this non sequitur where you see the Prime Minister of Greenland dancing at the end of an episode. And it's... It's just kind of beautiful. There's also a whole part of that episode where they're talking about Catholicism in Greenland. Yeah. Which is like, I okay, first of all, I don't know anything about Greenland. I'm just going to fess up. I know where it is on a map, and that's about it. And I had no, I don't know anything about the culture of the various religions in Greenland. I certainly didn't know about Catholicism in Greenland. So, well, thanks, hot pope, yeah. young pope. <laughs> it's... <laughs> So it'll teach you things. And <laughs> it's I educational. Also, I think one of the things I really like about the show is it's a show that's filled with a lot of conversations between two people, which is such a it's a format that could be so easily boring. Yeah. But I think the I think it does conversations really well. And I think that's because you never know what the Pope is going to say. You don't. And you're you're kind of on the edge of your seat to 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 find out what is he going to say next and it or it or it'll turn into a bit of a battle of the wits and that i mean this is where we also get into kind of the trump parallels where you have this figure who is you don't know quite how seriously to take him at first mm-hmm. but then you realize just how seriously you should be taking him and right. you know he no one understands how to speak to him or you know it's it's got this eerily 
the, these eerie parallels that make it feel kind of strangely relevant right now. In a yeah, way no, I'm, interested, I'm interested in hearing you elaborate a little bit on that because you you said something to that uh, to that effect in passing before we started recording, and I I'm not I don't see that so much. Like, what do you see in it that reminds you of the current political? I mean, aside obviously from the fact I that mean, like this guy is elected, and you kind of don't know nobody, what he's really about. Well, he's he's elected, you don't know what he's about, and nobody understands how he got elected. Ah. and he says he's completely. <laughs> <laughs> Since you put it that way, now I see it. <laughs> he says he's completely illogical things that people don't expect him. He nobody know no one can predict what he's going to say, and he communicates p- with people in a very unconventional way. Uh, he's so, also very temperamental, and and he'll just sort of shut people down or, or dismiss them. He's quite um, petty. I was watching an episode that involves a press conference right after Trump's press conference, and it was there. The parallels were really there. Like at one point, a reporter's like, "Um, wait." who are you? <laughs> like, cause there's a surrogate speaking on behalf of the Pope at the press conference. And it just reminded me of the lawyers coming out for Trump. Like, wait, what's going on? Like, and that's obviously purely accidental. Right. Uh, right. Of but, course. But it still very much reminded me of that situation where you have all these people around this, this leader uh, trying to play roles and, and, and help him, but they're not necessarily sure what to do either. Mm-hmm. I, I think just, this feeling of like this person could dramatically change things in a way that is completely unpredictable and could be um, destructive. Who knows? You know, that that feeling is really captured by the show, I think. What do you what do you all think about Jude Law? Well, you know, do I even need, do I even, need, <laughs> even need to need, say? Yeah. <laughs> need one point out that uh, he is he fulfills the requirements of being uh, young. Uh, by by Pope standards, yes, and uh, uh, also as Janice pointed out, hot. So he's, he's a young, we got a young kind <laughs> check, of a young check. hot Pope thing <laughs> happening here. No, I like him. I I, I think he's Jude terrific. Law. I like him, and I like him because he's now that he is, you know, he's in his late forties now, um, and he's heading into a character actor phase. And and I always felt like you know because he's so uh, ridiculously good looking, mm-hmm. you know, like in in. Uh, um, what was the movie with Matt? Dan- the talented Mr. Ripley. Yes. yes. He he. Uh, there were a lot of heavy hitting actors in that movie. Not only did he hold his own, he was so beautiful the way they photographed him that I thought like uh, he. I thought what a great Gatsby he would have made. Oh yes. Like he mm. really had that quality. Like the way that Gatsby is described in the novel, he had that, and yet Speaking he of- he was never able to translate that into stardom. But yeah. I think now that he's, you know, he's older, his hairline has receded, you know, he's in great shape here. He's obviously, you know, his holiness has been hitting the Stairmaster, we can, <laughs> we can tell. Um, but he's not like, he doesn't look like a tennis pro like he did in the 90s. And I think this character actor phase is really, really settling in, like in a great way with him. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I don't, I mean, he hasn't done much of no lately. I mean, I think he's done theater more maybe, but... I, it's like a kind of a comeback for him. Well, he's way. done some very good work in independent films, okay. like mid- medium mm-hmm. budget and low budget films in recent years. And, uh, uh, you know, and he's excellent. He's turned, he's turned into one of those actors that I'm always glad to see. Um, but, yeah, it's, it, I didn't expect him to be front and center in a television series. And I certainly didn't expect him to be playing the Pope. <laughs> um, but I, I think what's great about not? him in the part, too, aside from his uh, appearance, of course, is that he... Um, he has a really great ability to slide between very serious, dramatic scenes where he's very imposing and to also do these wink, wink things mm-hmm. that that's he does true. and be funny. And and that's not necessarily easy. I don't think a lot of actors wouldn't necessarily be able to do that with as much um, grace as he does. Totally. And, and he, yeah, he's kind of a joy to watch in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I, I'm curious what you, what you both think also about how much of a sense of humor this show intends to have. You know, like Paolo Sorrentino. Yeah. Uh, wrote, directed, he did. created this project. He directed every episode of this, which is increasingly a thing that people do. That's interesting too. Yeah. Do you? What do you think of his film work? First off, I I find him interesting. I've never entirely embraced him because I'm not. He's one of these directors who uh, I'm often not entirely sure how serious he is and how and whether or not he's kidding, and if so, to what degree. Mm-hmm. However, some of the greatest filmmakers of all time, you could say that about. Like you know, I've you know, like you could say that, and they're very different. The people mm-hmm. you could say, like you could say that about David Lynch. You could say that about uh, Luis Bunuel. You could say that about Stanley Kubrick. You know, you've mm-hmm. people say it about the Coen brothers still. Like, are they kidding? Are they are they making fun of their characters? Do they have compassion? Are they cold? Are they misanthropes? You know, and that inscrutability, actually, I've seen, I guess, maybe three of his movies, and they all have this kind of vibe. They all yeah. have this kind of vibe. And I think part of it, you know, he's Italian, yeah. and part of understanding his films might come with, you know, being deeply familiar with Italian culture. Right. Which um which maybe doesn't always translate well to American audiences. But there's something really cool about his style, I think. It's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's got a touch of like, you know, it's it, some of the filmmaking is in that kind of like uh Guy Ritchie um Wes Anderson, um, Martin Scorsese and pop mode kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like it's flashy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a little flashy. And and right. uh, uh, you know he doesn't uh, he he often doesn't shoot things in a simple way when he can find a complicated cool way to do mm-hmm. it, but um, there's an inscrutability to the show that I think matches the main character pretty well. You know, yeah, I yeah. Agree. I mean yeah. that thing you were talking about where it's like you don't know what this pope is going to say. I think that's true of the show. Yes, you know, and like Definitely. how how good how good at this how good at his job is this pope. How much does he know? How wise is he? Does he have any wisdom or does he just is he just somebody who who has mastered the art of sounding like he's wise? That's the that's the constant question throughout the show, I yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah. How can it sustain though? That's the question. Right. You know, like I can't. It's already know, been picked up for a second season, I think. Yeah. It I has. mean, we like it. We're saying we're saying pretty nice things about it. But like, you know, four four seasons from now, is this going to have is the charm going to have worn off? You know, I guess I, I think that depends on how high the stakes are raised by the end of the season. Right. You know, and I, I do feel like it's going to be building to something. I I couldn't say what, but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I have that feeling. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about what you think about Diane Keaton on this show. There something felt like like I love Diane Keaton, but I guess it felt a little like tonally different from the rest of the show to me seeing her on it um yeah. I felt when i first saw the the previews for it she stuck out to me i thought well that just seems strange for the reasons you're saying and i was surprised that it doesn't bother me more in the show like i i just sort of so much about it is so unusual and 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 strange right. that i i was like okay diane keaton's a nun all right fine i'll roll with it <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i can see that um I think because he's surrounded by so many characters who are feel like they totally make sense in that world. Yeah. Like she kind of does make sense in the sense that she comes from his life in America. Well, you know, casting Diane Keaton as a nun seems counterintuitive, but she's a hippie nun. Right. She's a hippie Mm -hmm. nun. She's like one of those like, you know, you would see 
Like one of those sort of super left-wing, granola-crunching Christians who would have gone straight from the commune into, you know, the nunnery. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's a, there's a whole sort of subcategory of, of, of American Christians of her generation who that's, you know, that happened. That actually happened. Like I believe, like once I learned a little bit about her backstory, I was like, "Yeah, okay, I see why they would get Diane right. Keaton for this." I wish she was in the right. show more. Yeah, she's not. She's, she's not, not in, in the show enough to make a to make a impact. Yeah, she's not in the show enough to make you say, "Yes, only Diane Keaton could have played this role." Right. That's but she's also is. not in it enough to make you go, "Diane Keaton's really distracting me in this role." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. So we don't have the Thomas Hayden Church on divorce problem. For me. Oh, yeah, I know. You like him on that. I shouldn't have said anything. It's all good, Matt. All right. Um, but who else do you think – who stands out to you on the show? Who do you think is is really uh, – uh, aside from Jude Law kind of giving a, a great performance? Because I do think there are like a lot of great character actors on the show who you know we're not familiar with because they're Italian. That mm -hmm. is true. That is true. Well, this one's this one's not Italian, but James Cromwell. Um, I was going to oh, mention yeah. him. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, I mean, he's. Uh, I don't know if, if you've ever met James Cromwell, but he's like ten feet tall, or at least he feels that way. He really <laughs> so is ten he, feet tall. He's a very tall dude. And he, and he just to me, uh, he's not somebody that I would ever want to piss off. So uh, <laughs> when he's not. he's in an angry mode at that one scene where he's spitting grapes all over the place, like that was great. Oh, yeah. Um. Uh, I can't remember. Sil is it Silvio? Orlando? Silver o Silvio Orlando. He's amazing. Yes, Card Cardinal mm -hmm. Angelo. Yeah, he's great. And there's a, it's it, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of really heavy hitting uh, character actors in this. I liked uh, the um, uh, uh, what's her name Ludovine Ludovine Sanier Sanier as Esther, the wife of the uh, security guard who wants to be pregnant. Oh yes, she have kids. she's really good. That's an interesting role, and it's a role that could have been very sort of reductive and stereotypical and possibly offensive, and yet I, done, I didn't feel that it was. I didn't, you know, I didn't feel that way either. That that was her story? Mm -hmm. I, think, I think TV shows take a risk when they uh, have characters who are primarily defined by one trait mm -hmm. or one situation, as she is. But everybody on the show is kind of like that. And, you know, there are points where the show reminds me of a – uh, a genre show. It's like, is it like in, in a weird, in a way, it's almost like a, it's like a, a show about a judge or a show about a private detective or something. Like every week, they have one or two characters who come in who, you know, they're either guest characters who just appear for that episode or they're minor characters who step into the spotlight, and they have a, some kind of a spiritual crisis or they're embroiled in some political issue, and the Pope has to solve it. The Pope has to solve it. He either, has to, he either has to solve it for them or he has to deal with it so that it doesn't uh, adversely affect his power. You know, so in that sense, it's kind of like it has something and it is kind of a tel it is a television show, like in a, in a sort of a very basic classic sort of way. Interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, it is also kind of a, a classic tale in the sense that uh, Jude Law's character – Pope Pius or Lenny is an orphan. <laughs> <laughs> I wish they'd called him, call him. I wish they'd called him Pope Lenny. <laughs> he's an or he's an orphan. Right. So you kind of have this, you know, this. I don't even know. I mean, it's not like a traditional orphan story. No, but it's kind of these flashback scenes that you get where you see him as a kid feel kind of like a classic. 
orphan story. It very much is, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's orphans are having a bit of a moment on TV because we have yeah. the OA, Lemony Snicket, um, the Young Pope. I feel I don't know if half the cast of Game of Thrones. Half this the point. cast of Game of Thrones, like <laughs> not having parents, seems to be something that makes you special on TV. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you well, know, I but think it always has in storytelling. Period. True. Yeah. I mean, we're just seeing a lot of them right now. It's a great old tradition, you know. And of course, the Bible had its share. Right. Well, we'll we'll definitely be t- be circling back on the young Pope as as the season or hot Pope, whatever you whatever you prefer. <laughs> We'll, we'll be here for it. We'll be keeping track of the of the of the of the fluctuating hotness of the hot pope as the season goes on. I feel like we also need to say hot pope the way that Eddie Murphy used to say hot tub in yeah. the Game Thrones celebrity hot tub party. Hot pope. It's too hot in the hot pope. <laughs> it doesn't even make any sense. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. You're right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I embrace it. I embrace the nonsensicalness. <laughs> If that is a word, and I've decided it is. <laughs> we'll be back in just a minute with Patrick Warburton. I'm sexy and I know it. I'm sexy and I know it. If you are interested in stories with happy endings then you would be better off somewhere else. In the story, not only is there no happy ending, there is no happy beginning, and very few happy things in the middle. My name is Lemony Snicket. It is my solemn duty to bring to light the sorry history of the Baudelaire children as it happened so many years ago. But you in the audience have no such obligation, and I would advise all our viewers to turn away immediately and watch something more pleasant instead. On Netflix's series of unfortunate events, Patrick Warburton stars as the titular Lemony Snicket, the pen name of author Daniel Handler, who is our guide through the tragic tale of the Baudelaire children. You also may know him as Putty from Seinfeld or the original Tick from the 2001 series. Vulture's resident Lemony Snicket expert, Jackson McHenry, joined us to talk to Patrick in studio about adapting the role for television. Jackson, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Gazelle. It's great to be here. It's fun to join the podcast for a day. Lovely to have you here. And Patrick, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Gazelle. Great (laughs) to be here. So I just wanted to start off by asking about, you know, just how you got involved with this project. You play Lemony Snicket, Mm -hmm. which is the pen name of Daniel Handler, the author of this series. And had you read the books before you got involved? I, I read something about how your kids didn't wouldn't read the books because the Baudelaire parents die in them. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they just thought it sounded way too sad and tragic. Yeah. And I said, mm-hmm. mm, this is just, uh, we're just skin deep here, you know. Um, um, I'm sure there's a lot more, you know. Uh, there's the, you know, they, so they just, uh, they, it didn't appeal to them. <laughs> I even tried to convince them that these were horrible people that needed to die. <laughs> <laughs> they knew I was lying. <laughs> But uh, no, so they didn't read them. But uh, they are, uh, I think, excited to see the series. Nice. And then I'm guessing you hadn't read them either because... I have not. I don't read. (laughs) (laughs) I am reading. I'm reading right now. I'm reading uh, Carrie Elway's... um, um, I know him a little bit. Uh, He did my favorite film of all time, the most charming film ever made, The Princess Bride. And he just wrote a book about making the film. And uh, it's a great read. It's really fun. 
Oh, nice. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. Mm-hmm. So what did interest you in this role? I was interested in the project even before I knew what the project was, simply because I got a, a text from uh, Barry Sonnenfeld. <laughs> Can you come up to uh, Vancouver for five months and do my new Netflix series? <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> and um, uh, when Barry Sonnenfeld summons you respond. <laughs> I, I, it had been years since I worked with him. As a matter of fact, even last year, probably, uh, I, I recall at one point thinking, well, here goes another year where I didn't get to work with Barry Sonnenfeld again. <laughs> uh, it had been a while. Um, and, and what had you worked with him on? I worked with him on The Tick. On The mm-hmm. Tick, yes. I worked with him on Men in Black 2. We did a film called Big Trouble years ago. I, I love working with Barry. He always brings... Uh, any project he works on to another level. It's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's the way he interprets. It's his comedic uh, sensibilities. It's his artistic, you know, eye. It's the way he shoots. He was originally a DP, a very high in demand DP who became, um, a very accomplished director and, um, somebody that everybody, uh, really wants to work with. So when you get that opportunity, an opportunity to work with Barry, whatever it is, it's a good one just to, to jump aboard. Of course, I inquired at that point, what is this? And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I knew, I knew something about, uh, you know, um, the series, the story I knew about their popularity, um, some 70 million readers worldwide. And, um, you know, I was, I was very curious about it as an actor. You always want to engage so the idea of being a narrator is not that yeah. sexy. And then, um, um, but as I talked to Barry, you know, he says, uh, Lemony in this incarnation is on camera and he interacts. And, uh, so it sounded, uh, that sounded really cool. And, um, Lemony is not a, he's, um, He's not like a, uh, he's, you know, like a Rod Serling in a way, but with empathy mm-hmm. because Lemony loves these children and this family and he's um, deeply moved by everything, almost a little too much. So, and, uh, there's a lot of history there. So, so. Yeah. It's sort of an interesting character because he hasn't been seen on screen before. He's been this presence in the books and he was narrating that first movie, but sort of you have to come up with a physical presence for a narrator, which must be an interesting challenge Mm -hmm. because he's moved by what happens around him, but he's also just kind of in charge. Yeah. 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 And, um, it's pretty simple with, you know, Barry, we didn't, you know, gussy things up too much with, uh, with Lemony. You know, the Mm -hmm. writing is so, so good. It's so clever. The whole essence of this is that, you know, really is that children are quite perceptive and brilliant and adults are all idiots and they Mm -hmm. just create problems. And, you know, with, uh, the seemingly insurmountable challenges and horrible things thrown at these children, they always seem to, to manage to make their way through because, of their intellect and their bond and their love and, you know, and Mm -hmm. even the adults, the the ones that mean well, just seem to make matters worse. And, uh, so everything's pretty smartly, very smartly conceived and and written. So it doesn't need to be spelled out. And even adult audience, you know, adult audience don't want things spoon fed to them. And and certainly, you know, this is a great example of, uh, something that is, uh, you know, is created and inspired for a younger audience, but mm-hmm. at the same time, it's on that 
that intellectual level. Things are not being spoon fed to them. And with lemony, you certainly don't have to spoon feed things. You just you spell them out. You tell you you tell a story, and he speaks within non sequiturs and this and that. And you don't mm-hmm. need to put anything extra on it. People pick it up in the mm-hmm. in the yeah. writing. You get to have mm-hmm. sort of Daniel Handler's writing, and you get mm-hmm. to define words as they come up. And yeah. say, you know, in this which in this sense means, or sort yeah. of which here means, and you you get to sort of deliver it very yeah. dryly because yes. the writing itself is so complex. So I think the real secret is just to step into these shoes and just not ruin it. That's a, <laughs> if you just can do that and not ruin it, then you've accomplished something. Yeah, mm-hmm. because it's a special. How would you describe Lemony Snicket as a person? Because there, there seems like... Obsessive. Obsessive. That's a good one. <laughs> you know, Lemony at one point was a suspect in the, the Baudelaire fire. So he had to clear his name. He's, you know, he's on the run. He's pursued. He's investigating. He's obsessed. He's nervous. That's, yeah, no, that's And good. he's a decent dresser. He's a decent dresser. He's he gets a, to arrive in, in great outfits and yeah. fit into the scene. Yeah, they did a lot of fun stuff with the uh, wardrobe. Well, we, this is the golden age of TV. Um, like it's never been actually because mm-hmm. of um, streaming sites like Netflix where they'll give you a budget to do things. And, and, and it really does become movies, movies for TV, mm-hmm. you know, where the creators are given much more creative license and not meddled with uh, you know, room full of suits saying, well, we need this for a demographic and we need that. Um, Hollywood, you know, bore something they can't just categorize. It's an action. It's a comedy. It's a this or it's mm-hmm. a that. The Princess Bride, which we were just talking about, so many different things, as Carrie talks about in the book. Um, they didn't know, is this a swashbuckling film? Is this about uh, romance? Is this a comedy? Is this an adventure? And as it was, it was all those things. This, this, you know, a series of unfortunate events in many ways is, is many different things. It is not a comedy. It's, but it is comedic. You know, it's sad and moving. It's satirical. It's, uh, it's many different things. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, on network TV, it's hard to do that because, well, we need a nighttime drama for this slot and this, and mm-hmm. we're going to make this our comedy hour with our two sitcoms. And then uh, maybe we'll make it up uh, four sitcoms and we'll, you know, and everything has to be real specific. Uh, you know, in this case here we have Barry Sonnenfeld and then um, Bo Welch who did the sets, who's done the sets for, you know, Tim Burton's films and mm-hmm. Barry's films. And um, even our wardrobe uh, uh, gentleman, Angus and his team won the Academy Award for their work on Moulin Rouge and other projects, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, it's shot like a movie. Each book is done in two episodes put together is like a movie. So each episode is like its own movie. Each book is its own movie. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it is a special opportunity to bring things to a different level. You're known for your work on The Tick and on Seinfeld. And I'm curious, having worked so much in network TV, are there other ways in terms of your work as an actor that working for some a streaming network like Netflix was a very different experience than working on a more traditional network? Yeah, well, it was very, it's very different in, 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 in the sense too that um, there's not a network presence. They're not, they're not there. You're showing mm-hmm. up on a set. It's just like you're shooting a movie, really. And I have four kids. I've spent years in Los Angeles doing sitcoms and voiceover work and I've had the 
you know, some great opportunities to venture off and do um, maybe a film here or there. But for the most part, I've been home and I've been a big part of um, my kids' lives growing up and I haven't disappeared a lot. They're all older now and a little bit more independent. Mm -hmm. And so so I have these opportunities now to, to go off like, you know, we spent five months doing this first season in Vancouver and it was just like doing a movie, you know, or mm -hmm. a big movie, yeah. an eight hour movie. <laughs> I mean, so much of it is shot on sound stages and sort of in this created whole imaginary universe. How do you sort of as an actor calibrate your performance amid all of these sort of technical effects and camera moves and stuff? You have to kind of be a little bit drier almost. Yeah, but it's it's simple. It was simple for me because mm -hmm. I'm not. I'm in, I'm interacting with the camera the mm -hmm. entire time, whether I'm in front of a, a green screen, walking through a set mm -hmm. where other things are going on. Or even if I'm coming up out of uh, the floor or, or underneath a table, it's still it's all directly to the the camera, and so that's where that's where my focus is. You know, mm -hmm. is communicating directly with the audience and breaking yeah. that fourth wall. Were you sort of isolated from the other actors as they were doing their scenes? To a degree, sort of, but I'm with yeah. them all the time. Yeah. So you know, I really I got to know um, you know that quirky group of hench people and mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> quirky, wonderful group of hench people, uh, also different. And, uh, the kids, you know, and, um, Melina and Louie and Presley, what a marvelous, <laughs> she, she may be the youngest Emmy winner ever in the history of the world. Yeah. She, she's such a good, great actress. She's, I, I feel like she's going to have a long career. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe another hundred years, yeah. right? That's a lot of possibility. Yeah. She's so engaging. Did you have many conversations with Daniel Handler about about the role of Lemony Snicket and building on the tragic backstory he has mm -hmm. in the book? No, not a lot. Um, Daniel and Barry had all of their conversations, you know, and so the project's in Barry's hands as a director. Usually with Daniel, it's just been very light, you know, lights that will sit down. And, and uh, I met him for uh, drinks yesterday. I... I just I tweeted. I said, "I'm I'm going to sit down with Daniel. What should I ask him?" And I got hundreds oh, I of can oh, all kinds of <laughs> you know uh, questions from the absurd uh, to uh, really relevant ones to uh, silly ones, and uh, it was it was fun to see them all. You know, Barry's the one that you really sort of get all of your direction yeah. from. So you know that whatever whatever he and Daniel have decided, mm -hmm. I'm going to get it from Barry. Jackson, you had brought up this Twilight Zone yeah, I mean, um, comparison that yeah. I, w I was curious to get yeah. your take on. Do you want to talk this about sort of that? Rod Serling. I had yes. talked to Barry a little bit about the show mm -hmm. and we were sort of doing interviews and things. Mm -hmm. And he mentioned the Lemony Snicket character being like a, a Rod Serling character and that yeah. he's kind of setting the tone and introducing you to this chapter of the Chronicle, which I thought yeah. was an interesting comparison yeah. to that world. Yeah. But it's a little bit more backstory because he's still his himself a character and he's connected to these events yes. more, not as detached. Yeah. I always found Rod a little creepy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Did you think about that or any other narr like iconic narrator types going into it? I didn't. I Because Lemony is um, so unique, I yeah. think, in, in, in the realm of that. And because he's not a detached narrator, but, you know, one who uh, um, it's all deeply personal to him. So, no... Mm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. And you, you have such a, you have such a great TV voice. You're, you're known for this, and every actor gets typecast in some way. And I, I'm just curious if there are any particular roles yeah. that you feel like 
people come to you for more than others because of like a role, like a narrator type role where you just have this both amazing presence, but also this incredible voice that can convey so many different emotions. It's not really the roles in themselves, but it's genres, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's what I get every year are sitcoms. Will you do this sitcom? Will you do that sitcom? Mm-hmm. Will you do that sitcom? You know, and the other the other other things are are a little you know have been a little trickier for me because they you know they put you in a box and and uh, sort of in the industry and so the opportunities that you get and that, that arise are the ones where you, I guess you've proven yourself or people like you in that mm-hmm. genre and so those opportunities arise. If it wasn't for Barry and Daniel, who uh, both requested to, um, to the network that I do this, uh, I wouldn't have done it. Uh, if it was an audition, I wouldn't have gotten the job. Mm-hmm. I don't. I'm. I don't audition well. I don't. Uh, I don't really care for the process. I, I have. I have ish, I, I have. I have. It's. It's a mental crap with me in my head. But I do not. I'm a self. You know, saboteur. And mm-hmm. uh, um, so, does that mean you usually end up like the roles that you do end up getting aren't through auditions or are you just they're usually offers fortunately usually offers. work begets work and um um you know there are actors that are really fine actors but not good auditioners they're really good auditioners that may not be great actors there are um, great actors that are really good auditioners too i remember so, when i was talking i also talked to barry a little bit about um about the series of unfortunate events and he mentioned that he said you know patrick warburton's the guy that you're always like i want to get warburton in this project somehow mm-hmm. Um, and when you hear, you know, someone say, you know, trying to find it, what is the sort of Patrick Warburton role? If someone mm-hmm. just tells you, you know, I have this role for you and I think you'd be great in it. <laughs> do you already have a sense of what that role might be like? Or Do you know what a, a Patrick Warburton character is? Mm. Like, does it make sense to you in that way? It, it, it does to a degree. And I, I think that if that's the inspiration, then I think what they're, they're looking for is a, a certain comedic take on it. Mm-hmm. And maybe some irony and absurdity. Mm-hmm. I think there's just something about me and my persona that's a little bit bigger than life and um, ridiculous at times. It's <laughs> easy. <laughs> it's easy for me to be ridiculous. And uh, this is a different, certainly a different situation and much more uh, toned down. And so I appreciate that. There are those things that I think sort of um, where the shoe just fits really well. Mm-hmm. I've, What's appealing to me is doing things that are really outside of what might be a normal uh, inspiration or, you know, I really want to do different things now because I've been doing a lot of uh, similar type Mm -hmm. things, you know, for a while. Are there certain types of roles that you're thinking? I like, you know, projects as a whole, I, uh, anything that's got, Sort of, you know, the depth and breadth and pathos that uh, a series of unfortunate events has is intriguing to me. Mm-hmm. Because when you've worked in the sitcom genre for as long as I have, it's um, pros and cons. The pros are you work for four hours a day, and mm-hmm. uh, that's about it. That's that's the average, and uh, it's a it makes for a great lifestyle. You can make good money, and you have your freedom in your home. But, you know, at the end of the day, you have just a sitcom to show for it. And they're fun. There's always going to be a place for sitcoms. And, but, you know, after a while, everybody needs a change. <laughs> yeah. And, so, so maybe some more, more on the dramatic end of things a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. 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 And I'm, I'm sure you've seen that 
the tick is getting remade. Yes. Have you have you watched that that Amazon pilot? Yeah. 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 Nice. And, yeah. and uh, I like it. You know, Ben Ben wanted to do a darker, I guess a darker version, a mm-hmm. different version. Mm-hmm. He wanted more creative control in this one. Peter Serafinowicz is doing it and uh, I think it's great. It's a different take on the the tick. It's more of a drier, straighter, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, more of an Adam West take mm-hmm. on the tick. So it's different than than what we did. It would have been fun to do it again. I would have I actually would have liked to have done it. Yeah. But uh-huh. um you know, Amazon had different ideas. They wanted to build it f- entirely new from the ground up and and so I'm uh you know, 100% in support of that, you know. Superman's get replaced. Yeah. Batman's get replaced. <laughs> all Superman, all superheroes, and you know, even the tick. It, even the tick. I mean, but it, your 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 tick character is so iconic still. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying, you know, the the TV landscape has changed so much mm-hmm. that a, a genre show like that almost mm-hmm. now has a little bit more of a place. Yes. Yeah. It was tricky, you know, coming out back and over at Fox, they didn't get what we were doing. They really mm-hmm. didn't. They were even asking questions like, you know, do these people need to wear costumes? Uh, <laughs> or superheroes. Yeah. And they let us shoot nine episodes and uh, held us for a year and just buried us on, uh, we were initially supposed to be on Sunday night. Uh, it was, um, we had a great time slot. Held us for a year, put us on Thursday nights against year two of Survivor. So they really just oh, fed wow. us to the dogs. They did not want mm-hmm. to support the show. The show, um, they didn't care that every critic from New York Daily seemed to like this show. They just, it was too expensive and they, they, they didn't know what it was. And, um, you know, and then you see, you know, 15 years later, they, again, Hollywood abhors what they can't like just to categorize yeah. and, you know, or say, well, this is exactly, you know, what this is. Between the tick and Seinfeld, you've, you've built up quite a number of catchphrases. Do you, do you find that people are, <laughs> People repeat them back to you a lot just when you're out and about. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there's uh, certainly the, you know, the putty ones and the tick ones. And then there's the, you know, the family guy ones or uh, mm-hmm. the cronk ones. The cronk, yeah. Yes. I was going to say, <laughs> like, ones, that's yes. a big one. Are there any, <laughs> any in particular that are more commonly remembered and beloved just based on what you, what you hear people Still Seinfeld. Still ones. Seinfeld yes. ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, certainly uh, with the Devils and High Five. And <laughs> yeah. Got to support the team. Um, you stole my Jesus fish. <laughs> we were really just trying to make you say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in terms of of Lemony Snicket, what? I believe was it Daniel Handler who's who said there's three seasons that are planned at this point it would be I mean, yes it would be, a, it would be. It would, it's imagined as a three yeah. season I'm sure yeah. you know, working yeah. on scripts for the second season mm-hmm. was he was but he told me when i talked to him sort of yeah. figuring that out yeah three seasons to get all mm-hmm. 13 books yeah so have you um is is that something you guys kind of talked about in the beginning as like your plan for the character for this entire like three seasons or no, i think we more or less take it you know one one, one at a time yeah, yeah. There are some fun, secret, ridiculous things, uh, you know, coming up. I think some really good opportunities to do some other things within the realm of a series of unfortunate events. I just can't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. But it is nice that you get to sort of work with 
Daniel and, and Barry because mm-hmm. especially Daniel has sort of mm-hmm. the authority to mm-hmm. look at his universe. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes fans can get very protective of, you yes. know, you don't want to change the canon. You don't want right. to alter the world. And he's already introduced a few changes. There's more of the yeah. parents in this yeah. version. Yeah. And it was funny talking to Barry because he says yeah. it was, he was happy to be like, well, you know, we can tell the fans that this yeah. is what the author wants. And, yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Well, you know, both Barry and Daniel were both fired off the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, which just seems um, crazy, but well, luckily for them, the movie wasn't a huge yeah. success, right? So, I well, mean, yeah, you know the the movie. Well, the movie they took, they tried to take three books and mm-hmm. and sandwich them into one short movie, and so now you lose a lot in, in that yeah. translation. This is a good thorough, right. comprehensive this is way, better to way to for their vision. Yeah, to be. yeah, it is. I think Neil is amazing as Olaf. I was. Um, you know, Carrie is such a strong presence, and I felt like you know this is a, a that's a character that Jim's like born to play. Mm-hmm. And then I saw what Neil did and was uh, just floored, you know, because he brought all um, his own take and uh, he brings all the menace, but uh, so much humor it's that so uh, it's mm-hmm. so good. Jackson, you were yeah. talking about how. He's such convincingly he's, a bad actor. Right. He's very like that, good at being a bad actor, yes. which is a sort of interesting, specific talent. Yeah, yeah. He can be very revealingly terrible. Yes. It's so interesting, too, in that first episode, you know, where he hits he hits Klaus, you know, mm-hmm. he strikes him, and there's no remorse. And it sets the tone that everything else, you believe everything else, and that he's... Mm-hmm. There's always that sense of danger, and yet all the humor continues to work, and it's authentic that way, you know. And that was part of, I guess, the direction, too, with Barry. He said he didn't want him to look at his hand afterwards or consider what he had done or, like, he made a mistake. And What do you think is appealing to people about a story like this where miserable thing after miserable thing happens and... I mean, it, it, especially when, when I was watching it, I had to kind of stop at certain points because yeah. it was just too much too much misery yeah. <laughs> I mean, would you recommend viewers watch it in a certain way as they're kind of streaming and binging it this weekend yeah it's been it's been um suggested that it might be best to watch two episodes together since mm-hmm. two each mm-hmm. two episodes is a book and you know an hour and a half or two hours of viewing should really be enough for anybody shouldn't it you know aren't we <laughs> we're all becoming slaves to our tvs that might be the best way to, to you know to to uh, go about it it's um there's a lot of focus on you know you know on all of that but then again the kids do always manage to survive and make it to the next mm-hmm. you know stage so i think part of the underlying you know um takeaway from this is anybody who watches it and is you know going through some shitty times can think well look at those baudelaire orphans they've uh you know they're they're sure dealing with uh you know plate full of garbage and making <laughs> yeah. it they they continue to make it, get up out of bed the next day, and continue to, to proceed, move on. <laughs> Very it's really an inspirational story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. I remember. Yeah, you know, no way. When I was reading the books yeah. as a kid, they, you would sort of read about them, and you're like, "I wish I could be like Klaus and Violet and yeah. make contraptions and yeah. read long books and know the meanings of everything." It yeah. Feels a little inspiring even as yeah. all the terrible things happen to the sure. adults you're like yes i don't trust adults yeah 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 so you know even though all these hor- horrible things are happening and whatnot there's still there's humor and they, mm-hmm. they still surmount and there's um there's enough ridiculousness going on and in, in many ways 
it puts all of us adults and the lives of children more under, you know, the, the microscope, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oftentimes I think we get away with a lot of sort of disconnect with kids in our lives or don't give them enough credit. And now they, you know, after something like this, they see right through us, you know, mm-hmm. so you, we have to be a little bit more on right. our game. Like, <laughs> We can, any one of us could be one of the characters, one of the adult characters in a, a series of unfortunate events that just doesn't get it. Yeah, K. Todd Freeman playing Mr. Poe is mm-hmm. such a gloriously incompetent. Yeah. He makes, you know, <laughs> so, um, it's, it just feels like you don't, you don't trust the financial system at all. And even after right. seeing him, you're just like, well, I'm, I'm being confirmed in that thought. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us, Patrick. Oh, thank you, Gazelle. This was great. Thank you, Jackson. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. That's just about it for this week's show. But before we go, Vulture editor Jackson McHenry is here to do this week's ARIA. Take it away, Jackson. If you happen to have a few spare hours and are looking for some comfort TV, I'd like to humbly recommend Hulu's Australian import, Please Like Me. The show chronicles the awkward misadventures of the 20-something Josh, played by series creator Josh Thomas, whose girlfriend breaks up with him in the first episode because she's convinced that he's gay. He is. Josh lives in Melbourne with his friend Tom and their dog John, who happens to have his own IMDb page. Hulu recently picked up the fourth season of the show, while the first three are already streaming on the site. Those who watched the first few seasons of Please Like Me will be glad to know that the fourth season continues in much the same vein, which is to say that it's funny, occasionally sour, and often bittersweet. Those who have never seen the show might find similarities in Girls, a constant American point of reference. Thomas, like Dunham, is nearly the same age as his character. It's also in the style of British millennial-centric comedies like Lovesick, My Mad Fat Diary, and Crashing. True to its title, the characters in Please Mike Me are cloying, needy, and often rude to each other. They're also very funny, and kind in the ways that matter. Please Likely knows its characters well, which means that it's able to arrive at big moments even in small scenes. A standout episode in the second season has Josh, Tom, and their friend Claire rehashing their friendships across a barricade of furniture Tom has piled in front of his room. Another in the fourth season has John bickering with his mother and father. They have divorced, and she is suicidal, at a fancy restaurant. Before you know it, you've been rejected before you even get out of bed, Josh's mother says, expressing concern over his use of dating apps. He responds quietly, Sometimes I get accepted. Josh and his need for acceptance forms the center of the show, and Thomas plays him with a quick wit that can come across as both morbid and absurd. While coming out, he tells his friend that he thinks he'll miss vaginas, which just, quote-unquote, makes sense. Josh's friends and his family only really trust people who are just as self-evolved as they are. Though in the most recent season, his friends start to mature out of their codependency, and he starts to feel a little stranded. He worries he'll become, quote, another single mid-30s homosexual on ketamine. One of Please Like Me's strength lies in the specificity of that fear. Josh's sexuality and the fact that he doesn't want to have kids makes the show a different sort of coming-age story than most you see on TV. Please Like Me catalogs the nuances of dating life for gay men, discussions about topping and bottoming, relationships with guys who aren't fully out of the closet, trips to HIV testing. But as the show has progressed, it's demonstrated more confidence in exploring its larger implications. Josh isn't interested in settling down, the seeming endpoint for so many TV relationships. So where exactly is his life heading? Is there any reason for him to grow up anyway? But let's not pretend there's anything too dour about Please Like Me. The dog's adorable, the direction makes all of Melbourne look like a neighborhood bakery, the boyfriends are all very cute, and the food, each episode is named after a different dish, is uniformly mouthwatering. There are only 32 episodes, and each is only about a half hour long. As with any good meal, 
you'll be done before you know it. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zeller Seitz. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zeller Seitz, probably making hot poke jokes. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter making hot poke jokes at Cheney J. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs>